Philippians chapter 3. I'd like you to begin reading with me, please, in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. Many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end of destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, of which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it might be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind. And I urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul returns over and over again to this theme throughout the book of joy and commitment and a peace that comes as a result of that joy and commitment. There's something in youth that is admirable and sadly something in age if we're not careful we lose and that is a particular kind of idealism about life and a particular kind of idealism about everything and the reason that it's so idyllic is because not many years of life and experience therefore not many bumps bruises and scars but as we begin to matriculate through life and begin to gather some of those things, if we're not careful, we lose that idealism. The scars come, repentance has been sought, but the scars remain. With age, it's easy to revert to peace and ease and lack of conflict. Because of having the conflict in younger years, we just are tired of the conflict and seek peace and ease. And therefore, we give up on that idealism that we had when we were younger. Life, if not careful, has the ability to jade the way we think. Color what we see and how we see it. But Paul is saying here, never, never, never give up on that idealism. And keep in mind where this man is at when he says this. He is not sitting in the palace eating with the Caesar. He is in prison. And yet, in view of all that, he still holds on to a commitment and a joy that moves, drives, and motivates him that is the dynamic of his life. And he's never lost, in spite of how many times he's been stoned, 
in spite of how many times he's been beaten, in spite of having been shipwrecked, in spite of having false brethren, he hasn't lost that idealism about what it means when we first have come to Christ. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day when you first came to Christ? Do you remember that day when, when your sins were washed away? Do you remember how pure you felt? Do you remember how, how much joy you, you had in that moment? How indeed the burdens of your heart had been rolled away? And everything then seemed ideal. But somewhere along the way, it's not just the idealism of life under the sun that can be lost. It's that idealism of being in Christ can also be jaded and colored. Paul never forgot. Paul never forgot the idealism of what it was to have given up all that was precious to him only to know, to gain, and to have fellowship with Christ. And so he says then in verse 16, verse 17, Brethren, join in, my join in following my example. And note those who so walk that you have us for a pattern. He talks about our commitment to God here. But he uses a word here in verse 17. The New King James has the word note. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. The Old King James has the word mark. That same word occurs in Romans chapter 16. Mark those of a particular kind of disposition and teaching and avoid them. The word mark or note is different than how we often have it described. The word mark or note is not brand. The word mark or note is I point my finger at you. The word mark or note there means to bring into close view. It's not okay. I called out someone's name who's walking in an unruly way and we have marked him. No, that's not this word. This word marker note is bring into close view. It's the idea of having a magnifying glass. And you, you put the magnifying glass over what you're looking at to bring it into closer view. Or if you're at Texas Stadium and you're sitting in the nosebleed section and you have your binoculars so you can bring the play into close view. And so that's the idea. He said, bring, in Romans chapter 16, you bring into close view and avoid somebody, but here you bring into close view and you stay close to them. Same word. Notice how he uses this. Join in following my example and bring into close view those who walk as you have us for a pattern. Bring into close view those who walk like I walk as you have us for an example. Bring into close view those who share your commitment to God. Bring into close view those who also are striving to walk in a godly kind of way. Pay close attention to them and bring them into close view. Make them your examples. Make them the ones you follow. Make them the ones whose footprints you walk in. If we're younger, then what he's saying is, you find someone that is a little bit older 
that you can set as an example and you watch how they walk. You watch how they live. You watch how they talk. You watch how they breathe. You watch how they do this and you do like them. If we're older, he says, you find someone younger that you can help bring closer into view like we're doing with you, like Paul did with Timothy. I've told this story before, but it well fits my illustration here. When I first started preaching, it depended on who I heard last with regard to how I presented the lesson last. If I had heard D. Bowman laugh last, it was like this. If I heard Dan Shipley last, it was like this. If I heard my dad last, it was like this. If I heard Joe Fitch last, it was like this, because that was his quirk. Eventually, you get to where you pick up the good that they have, and you kind of develop your own sort of thing. Those guys did it best. And I wanted to pay attention to how they did it. If that's how they did it, that must be how I should do it. That's what he's saying. Pay attention to who does it best. And walk like they walk. Bring them into close view. Now here's the blessing we have in this congregation. We have some of those older that we can latch on to. And we who are older have some of those younger we can latch on to. And so what he's saying here is, as a community of God's people, as a fellowship of God's people, find someone here that you can imitate or find someone here, you can help follow the pattern Paul is talking about. There's someone for everyone. And so he talks about the commitment, but there's something else he mentions here. And he says, for many of, of whom I have told you often and tell you weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Were these just Judaizers? You know, the Pharisees had strict adherence to the law. In fact, the Lord compliments them in this way. He said, if you want to know what the law said, ask a Pharisee. Because the Pharisee understood the law. Understood the law. But he said, don't do what they do. And here are the Judaizers who, who clung tightly to the law. But they also added their own things to the law. They also added their own hedges to the law. And those hedges they added to the law became more important than the law itself. Because... They were not humble people. They were arrogant people. They were people who were strife-filled. And Paul said, here, if it's these Judaizers who are haunting him, who are nipping at his heels everywhere he goes, they're pursuing him, and they're trying to do him harm. He said, they are enemies of the cross. And the reason they're enemies of the cross is because they don't have that self-emptying kind of heart. They don't have that serving kind of heart. Remind, remind ourselves of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 down through verse 11, when he gave that great illustration of Christ and the selflessness, the self-emptingness that Christ gave whenever he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. And he talks about how we then regard others Better than ourselves and esteem others higher than ourselves and put others before ourselves. 
and a long suffering and forbearing to others. Those Judaizers weren't there. That's not those Judaizers. In fact, notice how he describes them. He says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, who glories in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Here you have these Judaizers. They're enemies of the cross. They're arrogant. They add things to the law itself and put more importance on the things they add to the law than the law itself. But then he says, whose God is their belly. You know, in the Bible, when it talks of the heart, it's not talking about the blood pump. It's talking about the mind of man. Often when he wanted to talk about the baser things, the lower things, it would be the belly. Sometimes the word bosom is used, and that's a reference to the upper part. Higher things. But the belly is a reference to the lower guttural things that we would think about with regard to all the things that are base, all the things that, that are carnal. And so what he says is, here that they have their minds set on things that are absolutely carnal. That they've added things to the law, they've added things, and their God is their belly. Their God is, is the most guttural things, the most lascivious, lustful kinds of things. That's their God. And then he says, furthermore, they glory in their shame. The things they ought to be ashamed of, they glory in. May I just make an observation, just, just simply from the book of Ricky? I, I, I think the observation is true of our world, but I, I don't want it to be true of God's people. Our world has lost a sense of shame. Paul used the word shamefastness, bound by a sense of shame. Our world has lost a sense of shame about it. There should be things in which, because of shame, we are embarrassed about. But our world no longer has that. The world has God as their belly. Their belly is their God. And they glory in the things they ought to be ashamed. But God forbid, God forbid that should be characteristic of God's people. But sometimes I wonder if by the way we dress, we've lost a sense of shame. Because sometimes things are far too revealing. Sometimes I wonder if by the way we talk, we've lost a sense of shame because sometimes things are far too coarse. Sometimes I wonder whether we've lost a sense of shame because sometimes we want to be friends with the world. We engage ourselves in social drinking. We engage ourselves in dancing. We engage ourselves in gambling. We engage ourselves in things that are characteristic of this world that are not indicative of people who have a sense of shame. And if we've lost that, then who is our God? Is our belly our God? Have we really focused on where our citizenship should be, as he will talk about in the next verse? You know, a sense of shame is an interesting kind of dynamic to think about. Have you ever said about, your, your car's old, it's got nearly 200,000 miles on it, and the newer cars are up to date. They have all the bells and whistles. I mean, 
they'll do everything but blow your nose for you. And you can even order that if you want to. And you think, this car's got 200,000 miles on it. It's still good for another 200,000 miles. And so you drive by North Central Ford down here, and you see that car you just have been dreaming about sitting out there, and you drive by and say, no, 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 this car has 200,000 miles on it. It's paid for. It's good. I'm going to keep driving it. The next day you drive by there, and that car is there, and it's like the lights are blinking, like globe lights are blinking here to paying attention to me here. And you think, I'm just going to pull in and look. I'm just going to pull in and look. So you pull in and look. The guy comes out. I know Jackson works for Sewell. He works for Cadillac, not Ford. Jackson comes out and says, can I help you? Nah, I'm, just, I'm just looking. Okay, here's my card if I can help you. Oh, thanks. Take your pocket. Go on your way. I'm not going to do that. Well, next, next week you drive by there and there it is and Sure enough, Jackson's handsome. He comes out here and he said, I saw you last week. Can I help you? Well, can I test drive this? Do you mind if I test drive this? And they have an addictive smell to them. Because they know when you get in and you smell it, you're gone. Jackson says, breathe, breathe, smell it, smell it. Smell it for me. And then... How much is this? Well, the sticker says how many thousand dollars it is. Oh, just got slapped in the face. Oh, thank you. I'm going. I can't afford seventy thousand. I can't afford eighty thousand dollars on this car. Ten years to pay for this? That's how much I paid you ten years for my house. Next week I'm driving by, and sure enough, here comes. I stop and look at again, and Jackson walks out and says. You know, this is the third or fourth week in a row you've been here. Why don't you just come in and talk to me about this car? Okay. What kind of financing you got available for this? Well, for 20 years, you can finance this car. <laughs> and you can have a payment of less than $200 a month. <laughs> Sign me up. And I walked out of that car. Vroom! Now I have my brand new F-150 pickup, and here I go. And I spend the next 20 years paying for it. The first time I saw it, I said, no. And then bit by bit by bit by bit. Now, I'm going to glory for the next 20 years paying for this car. That's how we lose a sense of shame. Because the first time we run by it, it slaps us in the face. But the next time we run by it, next time we run by it, next thing you know, it's not just parked in our driveway. It's not just living in our house. It's part of our lives. And Paul said they have lost a sense of shame. They glory in the things they should be ashamed of. Paul said, don't ever lose that sense of idealism about what it is to be in Christ. Don't ever make your belly your God. And don't ever glory in things you ought to be ashamed. But then he will say in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whom we also eagerly wait for the 
Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body and be conformed to His glorious body. The reason we maintain that sense of shame fastness and the reason we maintain where our focus is is because as we sing, this world is not our home. And all of us must be careful that we don't make the domicile we live in a permanent residence. This is all just temporary. As we say, we're just passing through. Our citizenship is not here. As much as I play and as much as I love the state of Texas, it is not the promised land. There's a promised land, and it's not on this earth. And we need to maintain, we need to be sure we maintain where our citizenship really is and not lose that. And it begins with being in Christ. The second thing I want you to see, it begins then in verse 1. Therefore, my beloved, long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And then in verse 4, he'll refer. Bring back this thing, rejoice, and again I say rejoice always. Rejoice because of who he is and because of who, who you are. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren. You get the sense here when Paul says that, that there's, a, there's an, an element of despondency here. I mean, he's had Epaphroditus with him and he's now sent Epaphroditus back. Epaphroditus served him well. On behalf of the Philippians, they could not come. They sent Epaphroditus. But Epaphroditus is sick. They're worried about him. Epaphroditus is worried about them. And Paul's worried about the both of them. So he sends them back. And now then everybody's relieved. But now Paul, he says, longed for brethren. My longed for brethren. Are there moments in our life in which we do become despondent? I'm not talking about some kind of chemical deficiency that someone has. I'm talking about the despondency that comes just as a part often about living life under the sun. Sometimes the stars just don't line up. Sometimes the moon just doesn't shine. And sometimes the, the, the sun doesn't shine bright. Sometimes it's just a dark day. And Paul has that. And we go through those ebb and flows. We go through those swings. It'd be nice if life, life was one steady climb and the sun was always shining bright and the stars in the sky were always clear. But that wasn't true of Jeremiah. And it certainly wasn't true of Job. They had bad days, but the difference was they didn't wallow in them. They didn't stay there. They did what they could to overcome them. They tried to attain victory to overcome those blue kind of days. We have those blue days, that's fine, but don't make those blue days our best friend. We must work to try to overcome them. If there's anybody who had a reason to be blue at times, to be despondent at time, it would have been Paul because of all the things we've elucidated just this morning that he has endured. And even where he's at at this moment when he writes these things. But he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, long, long for brethren, my joy and crown stand fast in the Lord. Do we have a fortress kind of mentality about ourselves? Well, Okay, we've got the truth, and this is who we are, and shut the gates on the fortress because we're not going to let anything in 
And we're not going to let anybody in. We're happy with who we are. And we're happy with what we have. And we're going to guard that. We, we need to be the pillars in the ground of truth. We need to guard that truth. But we need to also recognize that the church is a refuge for people who were sinners. And we offer a message that can make people who are sinners not sinners. And if what we think stand fast simply means is, is that now we just hunker down and we just have a fortress mentality and we just protect ourselves. That's not what stand fast means. Stand fast because we've got everything right. But what if we started wrong? What if we started the wrong place? Then we're not going to wind up at the right place. But if we're going to stand fast where we are, we're not going to move, and we started wrong, then we're always going to be wrong. Let me, let me speak to something I, I think we need, need to be aware of. We, we use terms accommodatively. We use terms like conservative and liberal accommodative. It depends on the context of what we're discussing with regard to what is conservative and what is liberal. But I'm speaking in religious terms here. We need to make sure that if we are conservative, it's not because we're part of the party that's conservative. And sometimes I wonder, just my observation, just my observation, it could be wrong. If because we call ourselves conservative, that what we have done is we've signed on to a party and not an attitude toward the truth. Where those two end up are not the same place. Coming out of the discussions that took place in the 1950s and 1960s, and I realized that is a long way off from 2022. We had divisions that were called conservative and liberal. And I think sometimes what we got with the conservative were just people who were just curmudgeons and conservative about everything. They were conservative about God's word. They were conservative because they were conservative about anything. It didn't matter what God's word said. They were going to be conservative. They were going to say no to everything. And therefore, they were going to say, stand fast. It, it didn't matter what you said. It was going to be no. They were going to be conservative. They were just con old conservative curmudgeons. They were going to be conservative about everything, but they weren't conservative because the word of God said be conservative they were conservative because that was the kind of mindset they had the next generation came along that's me that's some of you and we have been educated to think conservative 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 and another generation comes along that's my children and we've been educated to think conservative 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 and the next generation comes along and that's our grandchildren and we still hear this term conservative. We hear this term liberal. Why are we conservative? Because we're conservative where Christ is conservative. And we're liberal where Christ is liberal. We're not part of a movement. This document we call the Word of God is radical. It is also dynamic. And we need to make sure that if we are conservative, we are conservative because that's where Jesus has led us and we still hold the commitment to deny ourselves, tape of our cross, and follow Him daily.
And as we have that kind of commitment to take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow Him, then we're going to follow where He leads us. We're not going to follow where our fathers said, that's conservative and that's liberal. Our doors are open. We don't have a fortress mentality that says we're going to stand fast and we're going to protect everything. The reason we are against some things is because we're for some things. And the reason we're for some things is because we're against some things. Because Christ is for some things and Christ is against some things. But we're not for some things because our fathers were for some things. And we're not against some things because our fathers were against some things. We stand fast because that's where the dynamics of the Word of God lead us. And if that means then I am conservative, I'm conservative. If that means I'm liberal, then I am liberal. But not because we have defined some party that way. But because we have aligned ourselves with Jesus and His Word. If we're going to be dogmatic about something, It can't be conservatism, and it can't be liberalism. It's a dogmatism that says, I'm going to cling to Jesus, and I'm going to do my best to follow His Word. And wherever that leads me, that's where I'll follow. Folks, I can't tell you how important I think that is. I can't tell you how important I think that is. Paul said, we need to then therefore stand fast in the Lord. The last thing that he says here is I implore Yodia and I poor Syntyche to be of the same mind and the same Lord. And I urge you, true companions, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. For all the good that we see in this church at Philippi, even this good church had, had some issues. There are two ladies, and, 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 and Paul doesn't say anything negative about these ladies in a denigrating kind of way to, to indict them for something, except for the fact there's something going on between these two ladies that now they have been set at odds with one another. And his appeal is to both these ladies, you be of the same mind. They seem to be good ladies. Listen, sometimes good people have problems. Sometimes good people have problems. Sometimes good people have differences. Sometimes good people have strong differences. Would you say that Paul's a good guy? Would we say that Barnabas is a good guy? Well, man, they were spitting mad at one another at one time. Because Paul wouldn't have anything to do with John Mark, and Barnabas said, I'm taking him. Well, then you go by yourself because I'm not taking It was kind of like nanny nanny boo boo. And, and Paul was wrong on that occasion. John Mark turned out to be a guy, he'd tell Timothy, bring him because he's good for me. What happened? Sometimes we have to give people time to grow up, too. But back on point. Good marriages have problems. Here you have a couple that stand before whoever officiates, and at the end, he said, and you shall be husband and wife, the two shall be one. The two shall be one. That's their state. The one. 
but it will take them the rest of their life to become that. And so we're all added to Christ, and now because of in Christ we are one. That's our state. And it will take the rest of our lives to become that. And just like in a marriage where two are becoming one, sometimes there are some potholes, sometimes there are some knot holes, and sometimes there are some knot heads. Sometimes we butt heads. But the two don't give up. The two are still trying to become one. And you look and you say, that seems like a good marriage. Pull back the veil. Look behind the makeup. Look behind the nice tied tie. Look where everything's revealed in the home. And sometimes you find they have problems, but they haven't given up being one. And so it is among God's people. Here you have these two ladies. Again, they see, I think they seem to work out the problem because he says in verse 3, I urge you, true companions, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. They, they've been beneficial. They labor with me in the gospel. You help them, you help them be of the same mind. And sometimes we get at odds with each other. And sometimes we need somebody to help us come back together. But because a good church has problems does not mean it has ceased to be a good church. You take a young eldership. A young eldership is going to have problems. You add new elders to a church, they have to grow to get their legs. There are problems new men added to an eldership experience that they haven't experienced before because they haven't got their elder legs yet. And give them time to grow into what you've asked them to be. And because an eldership sometimes butts heads a little bit does not mean they've ceased to be a good eldership. They're just trying to work things out. When you have six alphas in the same room, is it going to be wonder that you have six alphas who at times in making the sausage it gets kind of messy and they butt heads, but when they walk out, they're one. God bless Joe. When Breck and I came on board, he and Daryl had to be so patient with us. And then Joe's had to be here through the death of Daryl. God bless his heart. Also, the addition of my, me and Breck, Rick, Terry, James, Mike. And he just gave us time to grow up. To be of the same mind. What it means is we have a commitment to each other. And I'm not going to relent on the commitment. Yes, I may be hurt. Yes, something may have been said. Yes, I may have felt betrayed. But we're still going to work hard to try to be one. And we're still going to communicate. If in that marriage that there's problems, you stop communicating, now you've got real problems. If in a fellowship of God's people where problems may exist, and you stop communicating, now you've got real problems. 
And it may, it may even be that, that, that you're right and I'm wrong. But that you stay with me and help me be right. Or at least you, you stay with me and are the same mind with me so I can sometimes see I am wrong. Or sometimes maybe in the end I'm still wrong, but you still are of the same mind because we're trying to work it out together. You know why churches have problems? Same reason marriages have problems. You know what the problem is in churches? People. And I tell you what, if all you people get your head on straight, my life would be a whole lot easier. Because I'm right and you're wrong. You know that's nonsense. But do we think that? Listen. We're all just trying to attain the same thing and receive the same prize. And we all want the same transformation. And we all want the same glorious body. And so if that's the case, then we just keep talking. We keep working it out. And we're determined of one thing. We're going to be of the same mind. We're not going to give that up. Unity is not automatic. It is a byproduct of something. It's not a goal. Now emphasize that. Unity is not automatic. It's a byproduct. It's not a goal. It's a byproduct of spiritual maturity. And if we keep adding babes, you know what babies do? They mess your household up. Those new babies make you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Those new babies spit up on you. If you haven't learned how to change a diaper yet, then you'll learn because you'll get it on you. They mess you up. New babies mess things up. And you know what? Sometimes grown-ups mess them up too. But we're all trying to grow up into Christ. With that spiritual maturity, the oneness can be attained. What God did was He put a big circle around us. And said, I'm going to give you great latitude. You have this great boundary around you. I'm going to give you great latitude. I'm getting that boundary so you won't run off. Run around like a chicken with his head cut off. And when you have problems, don't, don't have a seizure over it. Just work with each other. Just work with each other. I've, I've given you the boundaries so that I can hold you close to me and so I can therefore bring you together as one. And so I end where I began. Never, never, never give up. What a powerful message Paul gives us here. You're so good to share this with me. I appreciate it so much. We'll have a prayer and a verse of song, and then we'll go to our classes. Thanks. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com questions at thebibleway.com we'd love to have you in person come if you can but thank you for connecting with us